BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I feared as soon as I mentioned the word plastic surgery, many of you might scratch your head, press pause, maybe delete, and question how this affects the topic of health and wellness and this podcast. I envision everyone thinking about nose jobs, tummy tucks, liposuction, facelifts, and breast augmentations. I think Housewives of Beverly Hills. And I'm really not looking to offend anyone by saying that. But the reality is, plastic surgeons and their work goes far beyond the world of aesthetics and deeper into some of the crazy health benefits, the comfort, the reconstruction, and the improved quality of life for people. Sometimes the solution can be found in procedures that we actually hadn't even considered. Dr. Trevor Nodwell from the Ottawa Clinic comes to us with a number of degrees, awards, and accredited fellowships. He also comes with some interesting and honest outlooks on the background behind the work, as well as how it helps certain health conditions that people may not have thought of, from burns to headaches to excessive sweating. There are treatments that fall under medical and cosmetic surgery and dermatology. So let's tighten up and get this edition of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang underway. The podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And for more information, you can always head to extensionmarketing.com. I hope I didn't kill you right there, Trevor. Is that okay? I I didn't cut it down too much. Totally. (laughs) I didn't sink the ship totally. Okay. (laughs) That, then that's good. I didn't aim to do that. But I actually am excited. We had uh, plenty of interviews that we had done on CTV Morning Live. And I know that this is a topic that kind of, it goes from A to Z. And it goes from like zero to a million dollars, right? Like you can have a mixture of all of it. Absolutely. I mean, it's such a broad ranging topic if you're talking about plastic surgery. And, and if we think about sitting here for an hour, it's a great opportunity. But I mean, we could we could talk for days, you know, and I could talk for days because I love it. I love it. But I'm happy to begin anywhere you wish. So I, for me, and I find it fascinating when I sit with people and people who have been in that chair, I always find that there's a why as to why they ended up doing what it is that they do, how sometimes it's really weird kind of forks in the road that they hadn't anticipated happening. But for you, I mean, was it that you saw medical school, that you saw helping people? This is a very interesting selection of medicine or the Mm -hmm. way to go Mm -hmm. in this field. Well, so my my foray into it wasn't perfectly direct to get into plastic surgery, but looking back on it, and you could ask people that have known me forever that definitely medicine was my calling. That's where I was going. Uh, eight years of age, nine years of age, oh, Trevor, he's going to be a doctor. Uh, and I think it, it, it happened um, uh, when I was young. I grew up in Wakefield, okay. and the doctors were just part of the community, right? Tiny little town. The doctors know everybody. Um, you see all the hard work that they do. They do everything. They're delivering babies. Right. They're and doing minor surgeries. Doc- yeah, They're the doing everything. Doing everything. Right. And so that was kind of my introduction as to what a doctor was. Um, Were you a sick kid? Was there a reason why you'd be seeing a doctor more often than others? No, but no? it's okay. just that you know their children are in your classroom. They're they're coming to give talks. That you see them at the grocery store. So they're just such a big part of the community. Um, and so I realized that, that that was something that I could do. And then time passes, 
Oh, guess what? Pretty good at biology. Pretty good at the sciences. Oh, that under, you know, I understand that. Oh, I don't mind hanging out with people. So then you realize that is a, is a place where all that can come together. So you were a strong student, especially in the science and the sciences. You, yeah. you weren't like me, really strong in like English and communication. And I dreaded going to science and biology class. Not the case. Uh, no, not not the case. It, it was it was just one of those. You know, everyone's got some natural strengths, and you know, I'm not sad to say that, that those were mine. You know. So was it a certain type of medicine, though? I mean, as you're growing older, as you're in high school, where was the intent then in terms of studying? Yeah. Where you knew the right programs were going to be for you? Yeah. Well, that then it it became clear, and I can't really say what the switch was for that, but it became clear that within medicine, it was my hands. So I felt like I had to do things with my hands. So I was going to be a surgeon, a general surgeon. Um, and you get exposed as well to community general surgeons. So again, people who can deliver by C-section, uh, do a hernia repair, uh, gallbladder removal, maybe fix a bone. Um, and so that was something that I was very interested in. And so you're talking about late 80s, early 90s. Okay, with that being said, the game of operation was like such a huge game at that time, right? And you had the game and you had all of the body, the pieces, and you had to go with like those little tweezers. Yep, I take it you were really good at that game. Um, I practiced very hard. I'm not going to say that it started right away, but I, I saw the other day my children were playing Operation the other day, and I was just like, "Oh yeah, you want to see something?" But I let them. I let them have it. Right. I let them have it. Yeah, absolutely. You didn't hear too many beeps going in from as you were in the kitchen and they were no, playing the game. No, no, it was good. It was good. So you knew you, you were good with your hands, mm -hmm. but there's a difference between you know doing a C-section or gallbladder or a hernia. And then the difference of sculpting and creating, you know, we're, I'm going to ask you, but like, was there, was art a, an interest for you? Did you see shapes and certain contours? Like, did you look at art in a certain way? Because there's some part of what you do, I think. There's an artist in there. Yeah, there's something. That I'm, I'm going to take a step back on, on, the, on the difference between aspects because uh, both in any medical training, and then specifically once you're in practice, you are working with other um, medical practitioners, other surgeons. And there actually is a beauty in watching any surgeon do his or her work expertly. It mm -hmm. actually doesn't matter what they're doing. You can see those hands, and there's an artistry in it all. Some of us have, you get a little bit of a, a more of a glamorous title when you say plastic surgery, but you watch someone literally take out a gallbladder expertly in 25 minutes. It's it's beautiful. So th there's a there's a lot of that. But um, well, it's really neat to see your eyes. You know, <laughs> like there's a true passion and a true appreciation for the work that's being done. And you know, sometimes you look at it like people are you're saving lives. There are, there are surgeons in in that quick maneuver of mm -hmm. tissue or an organ that they are truly saving a person's life. So. Yeah, yeah, as and you mentioned, let's go back. Yeah. Okay, so med school is where? Yeah, so med school was at McGill in okay. Montreal. 
Um, and, and then again, that's all general surgery. That's where I'm going. Uh, and then there's a residency matching program where you kind of uh, send out applications across the country. Uh, and then the, the schools interview for your residency to do your specialty training once you've graduated. Um, and I matched out to Halifax in the general surgery program there. And that was when another switch turned on. Um, fantastic general surgery program, amazing exposure. And they were even willing to give me an opportunity to do electives in other uh, areas of subspecialty so that I could be that community general surgeon, maybe working in the Northwest Territories or working in Northern BC, BC. that's where I wanted to go. But it was clear, like the, the more senior surgeons, they were like, that's really not where it's going. You know, that, that role of the of the of the general surgeon is of the changing. doctor that you had grown up with in yeah, Wakefield. That's right. It wasn't going there. It wasn't going there. And But then, it's interesting that that's where you had originally you wanted to be that, that guy. Yeah. And then um what then my lifeline was doing the plastic surgery rotation. Um because in plastic surgery, absolutely on any given day in the OR, and I remember this one specific day, um we did do a breast augmentation, okay? Uh, we did a facial smash. Someone had been in a car accident, had multiple facial uh, fractures, a hand fracture repair, and took off a melanoma. That was the OR day. That was, oh wait, that was like a day in the one OR. One day in the OR. Okay, one day. Go through that again. The, just the. So, in, in no particular order, because right. this is, you know, this is going on 18 years ago now. But I remember that day that we did a breast augmentation, so the classic cosmetic plastic surgery. Um, facial injury, so facial fractures around the eye and the cheek, um, a hand fracture that was plated and screwed, and then someone had a melanoma removed. Probably did a skin graft, I can't remember the details. And so I sat back on that day and I was like, oh, that's general surgery in, 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 the, in the most open sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then opportunities came about and I was able to, to change my direction and then, um, Four years after that, I graduated in plastics. That's a long run. So the run in school is how long? Uh, so once you do your, your basic university, so whether you do a degree or you get pre-admission or do a graduate degree, um, four years of medical school in most of the universities in Canada. Um, and then uh, depending on where you're headed, usually five years for a specialty program, um, like most of the surgical specialties. Uh, and then after that, you can enter into practice uh, or you can then go in to do some subspecialty training as well within your field. Uh, you might choose to to do something more specific for another year. So, you know, all in all, in, in uh, university and, and postgraduate work, it's going to be 11 to 15 years, depending. Yeah. <laughs> So many of us are just like, get me in the four years, get us out and get it and, and get us going. In in that, you had traveled, so you were in Halifax when you started to do in the residency, in the residency program, program yeah. where then amongst the additional eight years that right. I think I've calculated, <laughs> did you end up or, or find so, so by the time Halifax is done, so nine years of like the medical training is, is finished. And remember to those five years in Halifax, lots of theory, but very hands-on. So I don't want to discourage anyone out there who's, who's interested in pursuing the career. It's long, but many of those years are hands-on. 
so after Halifax, um, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was finishing up her medical school. We didn't know where she was going to match. Uh, so I worked around the country. I worked in the Maritimes. I worked out in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, then she matched to Ottawa to a dermatology training program here. Uh, and uh, so I, I got an opportunity uh, to, uh, to join somebody's practice and eventually take over his practice. Um, and so we moved out here in 2005. Um, then when she graduated residency, it was an, she had to leave town to do a, a fellowship training. And so I took the opportunity to leave as well. Um, so I worked in BC uh, and then in Toronto. So you've been all over the map. You yeah, you I'll, really are true Canadian at this uh, point. And you have covered trained, everything. Canadian trained through and through. Yeah, McGill, Dal, UBC, and U of T. Okay, by saying that Canadian trained, is there a difference in the mentality that you think had you had gotten this exposure in states like California, Florida? you know, in the Miamis and in the LA's of the world that there would have been a different outlook on the work that you do. Uh, and I'm trying not to be stereotypical right now. I really not, but you, I, I don't know if as Canadians, we're just a little bit more laid back or we don't put as much emphasis on being yeah. like prized. <laughs> well, I mean, trophy. I, I, I think, I think if I know, if I know what you're asking, right. uh, that it, it would be a little bit too hard to characterize those training programs having no experience with them. But you're right, is that when you think of the large American centers um, for plastic surgery, there's going to be an emphasis on the cosmetic side of it, absolutely. Um, and whereas in Canada, you get that cosmetic training, no doubt, but there is also an emphasis on skin cancer reconstruction, post-mastectomy breast reconstruction, burn surgery, hand surgery, that sort of thing. And there are centers in the U.S. that are world-renowned in those areas as well, mm -hmm. like absolutely. But for the everyday residency experience, I do think uh, that I'm, I'm not overstepping when I say that the Canadian experience is a little bit uh, more varied. Okay. Now, the, the reality is, is that you're now back home. Mm -hmm. As much of this traveling as you did and, uh, you know. 30 minutes from home now. Yeah. See, yeah. how amazing is that? So you have been able to settle back here, mm -hmm. have the practice of the Ottawa Clinic. Mm -hmm. Do you and your wife work together? Because well, I know that there's dermatology within yeah, the practice. We, 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 did, we did work uh, there together for a number of years. And, um, you know, it pains me to say that she has stepped back from the practice, but I'm also super happy. Um, she works... Uh, at the Ottawa Hospital at the Civic Campus um, where she does a specific type of skin cancer surgery um, called Mohs Micrographic Surgery. Um, the only person in the region to do it and one of very few women in the entire country who do it. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult and challenging practice. We have a young family uh, and she has decided that she's focusing on that and spending a little bit of extra time with the boys. Which is nice. Five yeah. and seven. Five and seven. So you're, yeah. it's a very busy age. Yes. It's a, it's a busy age. It's a building practice. This is yeah. kind of those years in life, right? When you mm -hmm. just, you just, you just go with the flow. You survive through it. Well, when, when we look back on this, it was um, almost eight years ago because our, our eldest will be eight in the spring. Um, and we look back on it and we did the three things that are supposed to be the, like of the most stressful, positive things in your life. Started a new business because we had moved back to town, um, having a baby and bought a house all at the same time. 
and yet somehow we survived. You're surviving, yeah. and yeah. I think, and thriving. I think so. So when we talked about this discussion, mm-hmm. there were a lot of different health concerns or things that I think people don't often think about when we talk about plastic surgery. I don't know, maybe it's this, the plastic part that mm-hmm. we put in front of the surgery that throws a lot of people off. Yeah, yeah. Because when you were talking about the surgeries that you're doing, I'm like, you're a surgeon. Yeah. But then you throw the plastic word in front. Yeah. And I automatically think differently. And I mean, the, any plastic surgery uh, trainees or plastic surgeons out there will go, oh, well, I know what he's about to say now. Because it, it's that the, the title or the name for plastic surgery, it predates plastics it it comes from the greek plastikos so just meaning moldable or to change form and so we use the term plastic to refer to these products in our lives that are plastic because we can mold them into anything we need and therefore they're ubiquitous but plastic surgeons for 3,000 years, we didn't know there were plastic surgeons at the time, but have been doing things, molding parts of the human body to help change form and improve function. How fascinating is the human body or its ability to heal itself? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, I mean, not, not to cut you off, but it, it, really, it really is amazing when you think of... Uh, following someone for an injury maybe maybe you don't have to intervene you just sort of have to guide their recovery or someone who's undergone um, a surgery like a major component of my um, OHIP practice is uh, breast reconstruction and and, uh, breast reduction so um, take breast reduction an elective procedure people think long and hard to go through with it Uh, you perform the procedure and to see someone week two week six, month three, year two, and to see them recover from that injury, it's amazing. How is it possible that we can do that? But the human body is amazing. That's what I mean. You know, and I don't know if there's just more science that's, or more science that's mainstream so that people can watch and understand in these documentaries. Mm -hmm. Just the ability of the human mind and mindset and, uh, you know, how the whole system works together, that it does have the capability. Well, and it is amazing, too, the accessibility now to um, scientific information and and biology and physiology, Um, sometimes a little bit unfiltered, but it's amazing. People are so knowledgeable now when they come into the office um, about, about expectations, even, you know, just you know, photographic and videos, but a lot of people do understand the basics of of wound healing, and it's impressive. Right. They're also bombarded with images. It used to just be, I'm sorry, it used to just be that we would see it in our magazines, right? The the magazine at the end of the grocery store line, and you would have, that was our only visual cue of what was in the magazines Mm -hmm. or what the models were doing or what was in fashion or how we were supposed to look. Now you can't open your phone, your device, your computers, your television without the constant visual images. How much is like Instagram? How much has that social media platform changed what people are coming in for or coming in with a picture on their phone and saying this, (laughs) I want to look like this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it, it is it is one of those necessary evils that we all kind of live with. Um, but uh, 
people coming in with just like, I want to have these lips. I want to have this backside. I, I, I want what she's had or what he's had. Um, uh, you know, I've been in practice now for 15 years. And so it wasn't like that before. You know, people didn't even have websites when I started. Right. I mean, the before and afters, you know, became mm-hmm. uh, an understanding of this is what is and this is what is possible. And it's such Even a powerful communication tool. Like it, right. it's, it is absolutely necessary because when, when we are um, dealing with, uh, with, with anything, if you can show it in picture format... Um, it, it does convey so much information so much more quickly. And even I invite prospective patients to come to me and sort of say, well, what, what is it that you have on, can you show me? What have you been looking at? Because that helps make sure that we're on the same page. Is it disappointing, however, sometimes to see because of a trend on a social media platform that people are choosing? I mean, there was that whole lip suction thing. Do you mm-hmm, remember that when people mm-hmm. would stick their lips in a in a shot glass? Like people were damaging their lips, like the whole outside. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's where um, primacy takes over of just physician first, you know, medical practitioner first. Um, so th- this it's not a discussion. It's not a thing that really came to our office that much. You know, it was it was something we were aware of, something that people would mention, but um, people weren't really coming to us and sort of saying, "I want to have these ducky lips," kind of thing. Um, and and that really is is where you have to kind of mark your line in the sand about what you're willing to do, what you're willing to offer people. And I truly feel there is nothing wrong with helping people overcome some um, senses of physical inadequacy that they might have. If there are safe um, interventions that we have, I have no problem offering those to them. Um, but if their goals start to skew in a certain direction, that's that's where you have to sort of say, no, as a you know an ethical medical practitioner, uh, I respectfully won't let you go that way. And have you done that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have I done it this week? It's only Tuesday. So by the end of the week, yes, absolutely. I was reading an interesting article when I was looking at the health benefits or certain procedures that are being used to help people in not a cosmetic, like not how we see a cosmetic way. And mental health mm-hmm. came in as number three as to the benefits or a shift in how people think. And so can I ask you, are you surprised by that, where it came in, that it was such an integral part of this article, depression, uh, anxieties? I, I'm, I'm assuming that it's anxieties and stuff based on how people feel about a certain aspect of their, of their body. This podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They are a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally as I've been using the extension marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. Right, and certainly it's something that we've talked about, you know, for the, you know, the greater we for a very long time. And in, in a lot of the um, scientific uh, patient questionnaires, there's always going to be an in-depth section about body image and about uh, 
you know, mental health and that sort of thing. So I'm not surprised. Um, the the difficult part sometimes is teasing out um, uh, and, and better understanding a person's response to their concern. You know, do they have, um, on the one hand, what might be considered a very significant um, concern and it only bothers them a little bit? Well, guess what? They're going to be, if, if they choose to pursue something, they're going to be a very good candidate. Um, or do they have this really minor concern um, uh, that, that is, you know, just abs they're absolutely obsessed with it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and I often um, take it where I sort of say like at a conversational distance. So I'm sitting there chatting with somebody and I often say, well, you're concerned at a conversational distance. I, I can see what you're talking about. Like you're too hard on yourself, but I can see what you're talking about. Well, now let's let's go down this road, or alternatively, at this conversational distance. Like I'm sorry, I really don't see it, uh, and, and I know it bothers you, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can you can take it down down that road. Um, so that's the difficult part mm -hmm. is trying to trying to tease out who can you really help, or who are you just going to be just displacing problems or starting the domino effect oh, yeah, of, of them being absolutely. able to do this. In my intro, I was talking about certain conditions that I wanted to get to. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them, am I going to say it right? Hyper... Hyperhidrosis. There we go. Hyperhidrosis. Yeah. Excessive and this, sweating. Excessive sweating. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize there was there were procedures to be done. Mm -hmm. How many people does this affect? I mean, who are we looking at in terms of a population? Right. So if you... The two, you know, the major studies uh, in Canada and the U.S. seem to suggest... Two to three percent of the population will have, you know, clinically diagnosed hyperhidrosis, and the idea there is that that's sweating beyond physiological need, right? Because no one questions that we absolutely must sweat. You know, it's critical to our to our health and um, heat, body temperature regulation. So two to three percent of the population uh, is is going to sweat beyond those needs, and then situationally i mean we're most of us are living fairly high pressure lifestyles and moving from different environments you know in the winter time from the from the cold outside with your four layers and then going into um, to a warm a warm room and it's that important meeting uh, a lot of people are troubled more than one day a week by sweating that makes them uncomfortable as well so there's true clinical hyperhidrosis and then there's sort of socially important excessive sweating so the big board meeting mm -hmm. and they can't seem to calm that's right the body system that's right into that's right. okay so it, you're sweating through your shirts you're sweating and and you must you hear that yeah i i hear that and uh, i've i've seen it in in people in my in my own life and of course um uh in my professional life once people hear what it is that you do that tends to open the door to, to questions. Um, and so I was very surprised, you know, even 10 years ago when people were saying like, I always bring an extra shirt to the office. Uh, I'm, I'm wearing sanitary pads on the inside of my shirts because I'm soaking through them or I never take my sweater off at work even though I'm so hot and sweaty uh, because people are really embarrassed about it. Um, and uh, so the, it, it, is, it is very, very common. And of course, in our office, we're very open to, to chat about it. And um, so perhaps I have a sort of a skewed 
a skewed version of it too. Well, well, it's not. It's just I don't think it's it's talked about in your office, but as you mentioned, it's not talked about in the day to day living. Mm-hmm. If someone is won't take off a sweater even though they're dying of heat because yeah. they know that there's excessive sweat underneath. So, what are the treatments like? What what is available right. to individuals to help this? Right. Well, so um, I'll begin at the beginning because, of course, in our office, again, skewed population, and a lot of people have gone through some of the behavioral modification, stress management, meditation, like all that matters. Um, uh, Dietary and um, natural approaches, uh, not a lot of science yet about it. People are very interested, you know, does chamomile tea affect excessive sweating? Uh, Do certain sage and other herbal extracts uh, affect it? We're not sure yet. The evidence hasn't been mounted, mounting. But so they've gone through that. They've gone through their um, uh, their drugstore aisles, right? They've looked at all the clinical strength antiperspirants uh, and the over-the-counter um, applications that are out there, and, and that has failed them. Can I ask you a question? Is there what's the difference in terms of how our body processes the anti antiperspirant or deodorant or deodorant they're too different and I, I yeah. think we don't realize that and and I do you know I, I ask that question more often than not like are do you mean deodorant or antiperspirant and I'm usually met with a blank stare right. um, and so uh, usually if you look at the um, uh, at, at a deodorant it is going to be some mixture of um, perfumes and scents it, it, it's there just to mask the potential odor of sweat it has no impact on sweat production um, or wetness or anything uh, and then the the antiperspirants that are available um, over the counter uh, they they have some type of oxide some type of aluminum oxide um, that uh, is involved in actually blocking the pores and decreasing sweat production so the antiperspirant is 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 stopping perspiration or reducing perspiration and the deodorants are just affecting um, smell what should people be using what should people be using well that i mean that's that 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 is a that is a very big question if we're standing in front of the aisle what is where should we be looking? Well, I, I mean, I think that people should always um, keep their, their ears open and their, and their eyes open about uh, information that changes over time. Um, right now, and let's, let's speak about people who, who don't have any um, hypersensitivities to different chemical products, who don't have issues with um, different uh, perfumes, and that's if just you could put anything on them and they'd be okay. I think you can choose what you feel works best for you. Um, some people do have concerns about um, these uh, metallic oxides mm-hmm. and putting them on their skin and how how are they absorbed and are any of those byproducts stored in the body? And I would suggest that at this point we don't have any evidence to say that there are, that there are long-term uh, implications, but... Um, uh, you know, you just have to be uh, open-minded to see if, if the science changes, then um, maybe the recommendations would change mm-hmm. to not use some of these products. But for now, it really is, is it working? Is it bothering your skin? Then you can use it. Okay. Let's go back to if you're sweating through it, <laughs> if you're sweating, sweating through, through the shirt, sweating through the jacket, yeah. what is available? Well, so um, I could do... 
you know, I could do my personal journey, you know, if we want, I, if we want to talk about this. Are you good to go? Because we we're good. We're, this. yes. Um, because uh, I think that my story kind of exemplifies what I hear. So, um, again, not someone who uh, would um, necessarily qualify as, as um, uh, excessive uh, hyperhidrosis, but certainly excessive social sweating to the point that, you know, if I did choose to wear a jacket at work back in the day, I would not be taking it off necessarily throughout the day. Um, and the uh, regular antiperspirants were just a part of my life, um, trying the clinical strength antiperspirants. Then on the advice of my wife, the dermatologist, mm -hmm. um, trying other over-the-counter applications like Drysol. Um, and there was a certain efficacy, like they certainly helped, but um, I just didn't have the skin for it. Um, I, I, I don't do well with those products. They sting, they burn, and so I have, I have some sensitive skin. So I just want to, because yeah. you talked about social settings and so mm -hmm. forth. So this isn't you standing over a patient in a surgery. Oh, that, that's, that's easy. That was yeah, easy. So yeah. that, there wasn't the excessive, you know. Yeah, maybe sitting down, having a conversation with somebody on a podcast or something would be one would of those situations. Would be one situations. of those, okay, yeah, okay. Exactly. So it's not that we're in, you know, in a surgery. That's not where you felt it. No, no. Okay. No, so certain, but, you know, just anything that would be considered a stressful situation and, and these, these over-the-counter solutions not working for me. Um, and because it was affecting me uh, on a fairly regular basis, then, I could, if you will, qualify for other treatments. I wasn't really willing to consider um, some of the oral medications um, because there are medications that fall into different groups, the, the anticholinergics, the antihypertensives. There are certain groups of medications that you can take uh, and they actually can decrease sweating, not only in the underarms, but perhaps in the, in the feet and hands, et cetera, that can also be important but the potential side effects, just the effects on your blood pressure or a dry mouth or the effects on sleep, I didn't want to entertain that. Um, and then so I started looking into other options. Um, and then one of the um, uh, more common options that's offered out there is Botox. Um, and people are very, very surprised because they think of Botox often as just this uh, cosmetic uh, medication that you can use right. just for, for your wrinkles um, but it actually has therapeutic effects and so when injected into the underarms as an example um, you can decrease sweating depending on the person 65-85% for six months or more so two sets of injections every year and all of a sudden uh, you're not sweating through your clothing Right. You're so, not taking away the anxiety that you may feel prior to right. going to do that big presentation. Right. It's not doing that. But you have the comfort in knowing that you're not going to be sweating through your shirt and your jacket yeah, by absolutely. doing that presentation. Absolutely. And and that that is something that is available to many, many people. Um, and it, as I said, it's highly effective. Um, it, it lasts a long enough time. But again, on you know my personal story... Having done that for a few years, every six months, um, and as someone who has it available to me at any time, uh, I, I did find it just a little bit inconvenient. 
Um, and I still couldn't go back to the the antiperspirants and that sort of thing. Those those irritants for me. Um, and then so there are other uh, other things out there. Um, surgeries have been available for a long time. Um, uh, we can go into the details of them, but just you know, uh, broad strokes, you can actually remove the sweat glands, either directly cutting them out or suctioning them out. But do I really want to go through surgery just because sometimes I sweat a bit too much? Uh, so then I was looking into other technologies that are available out there. Um, you know, you're thinking about, as I was, more permanent interventions um, uh, and surgery is not necessarily something that I was interested in. Uh, then there are other technologies out there. And um, there was a uh, is a microwave technology called Miradry. Um, and I first was introduced to it back in 2011. It was just getting its FDA approval um, and then subsequently got its Health Canada approval in 2012 um, as an office-based non-surgical permanent sweat reduction technology. Um, it was very, very compelling right from day one, but we're not the kind of group that's going to just say yes to any new technology. So we've been watching it for a number of years. Um, and then uh, over the last couple of years became absolutely convinced talking to the international experts that this was something we wanted to offer um, the patients and clients at our clinic. Um, and so I said, well, if I'm going to be offering this to to my patients and clients, of course I'm going to do it. Uh, and so it was actually just last week that I that I bit the bullet, scheduled um, with my staff, and did mirror dry in the office, which was uh, which was pretty cool. So I'm I'm mid evolution of my story to mm -hmm. kind of see where this goes. So now that you're sitting halfway through a podcast and what would typically be a pretty stressful situation, yeah. how are you holding yeah. up? I'm doing all right. I'm sitting there going, hmm, <laughs> did they do it for your low back? No, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. They, but haven't, yeah, figured they haven't figured that out. But you can, but you feel, and there's a certain, I would think for people, a certain sense of confidence or just as you talk about it, right? The mental, where your mental mindset is, yeah. is knowing there's a certain situation that's not going to keep you. Yeah, and it's just, it's one less thing to think about. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as I said, like everybody has a busy life. Everybody has a lot of demands on their time and on their efforts. And and whatever is that thing that's nagging you in the back of your mind, if you can quiet that down, then you can perform better. People would love to be able to sleep better. Uh, oftentimes though, breathing, uh, you know, we're not going to talk snoring because there's so many different levels to sleep, but I was, I was reading as well, while we think of cosmetic nose jobs to mm -hmm. kind of give us the cute little button nose, there are other benefits as well. And so anyone who knows me or who has seen me, right? Like I have like this crazy, A, it's the Jewish nose, but then I've broken it. I've landed on my face three times. So my nose has been broken so many times and I remember being a child I think I was nine when the first time I broke it they laid me on the table and he put his two hands on top of my nose and lifted his feet off the ground and like snapped my nose back yeah. into place like I remember it so vividly you know and I was always joking like if I broke my nose one more time I would actually have access to medical coverage to get my nose fixed right yeah. because it was going to cause a lot of different issues what mm -hmm. are people running into where it's not necessarily that they don't like the look of their nose but there's blockage or there's breathing issues yeah. that can be helped yeah well n now I, I do sort of have to reach back into my memory banks because um, rhinoplasty or nose jobs not a part of my day-to-day -day practice um, certainly it's part of our training and and uh, if I'm on call in the hospital and someone's nose is a little bit uh, off kilter I'm happy to help um, 
But my colleagues in the office who do elective rhinoplasty, you know, both cosmetic and functional, um, it really does come down to the things that I think everyone's already aware of. Um, the, the dry mouth, the inability to breathe normally through a nose. Um, uh, if you have the tiniest bit of a cold or any type of allergy, that, that little airway that's almost adequate closes off. Um, so a lot of it comes down to, to, to breathing so issues. So it's the airway issues. It's that it's, there's blockage, that there's no passage for that, air. Absolutely. I mean, the, the nose, I mean, we, we think of what we can see on the outside and, and whether it's turned up or a bump here or crooked there. But, um, you know, as plastic surgeons and ear, nose and throat surgeons who have a more intimate knowledge of the inner workings, it's a very complex organ in a very small space. And so um, enlargements from swelling or changes in the airway from old injury or just, just from development can have profound effects on how people, um, how people breathe. So how often would you say that someone would go in for a functional fix? Yeah, oh, that's a. I mean, that one just really is tough because um, those things are redirected to my other colleagues. So I, I okay. just don't know because I'm not performing that surgery. But, it, but and ear throat, uh, the ear, nose, and throat doctors throughout the city, and then within our own um, clinic, two of our plastic surgeons who have additional subspecialty training in that area. Um, I'm sure they're seeing people on a weekly basis, but beyond that, I just don't know. You do know a lot of people coming in with headaches. Mm -hmm. And so while you mentioned that Botox was one of those kind of six month being able to withstand some of the sweat glands, the same I think a lot of people are saying, well, they go in to get Botox, uh, you know, in certain aspects of their mm -hmm. forehead, find a, a really great relief from those that would typically have headaches, mm -hmm. that there seems to be some relief from it. Yeah, absolutely, and and that is that's well documented in the literature, um, and and then anecdotally within my own practice, you're absolutely right. So people coming in, they 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 don't uh, they don't like this line. They want to uh, adjust some crow's feet, what have you, and then second visit, four months, five months later, second visit after that, um, they're saying, hey my headaches are, are down. Is there any, you know, can this be related? And absolutely it can be. Um, uh, that's a little bit where my knowledge of the, of the headache aspect of it kind of, kind of dries up um, because uh, I know that they work really, really well for tension headaches. It works really, really well for some groups of um, migraine or other vascular headaches. Um, uh, but you know who should be pursuing Botox for headaches? Um, that's just another area of of subspecialization. But you have people coming in though asking or saying, "I heard." It, it's interesting. Yeah, Maybe it's yeah. because you know, in in the demo or some of the discussions that you know my girlfriends and I will have, you know, there's you know somebody will just have had it done, and yep. you know, and someone and the other girlfriend will say, "Oh my God, did you notice that it, it's helping with headaches?" or um, a lot of people tend to have like, um, they carry a lot of, we carry a lot of stress in our faces, right? So we're sleeping with our, you know, faces scrunched or in like that tension. Yeah. Uh, and it, there's almost a relief of it because it's just, it's relaxing some of the. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I think absolutely that that is the case and so that's where in in our practice it is a little bit more anecdotal so it's just another happy side effect i mean in the same way about botox being used for underarm uh, excessive sweating uh, some people who get botox in their foreheads for lines uh, if they were always dabbing their forehead with a napkin 
Well, guess what? Some of their excessive sweating in their forehead can be reduced as well. So it's not something that we're actively pursuing within our practice, but it is a happy, um, a happy secondary side effect. Some of the work I would assume isn't always as happy as people walking out feeling like a million bucks because there are people who are dealing with accidents. A, a close family friend who was dealing with severe burns. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that comes into play when people are just looking for comfort. Uh, how often, or what's your mindset in seeing that those are the patients that you're really making a difference in their quality of life? Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you are always going to have those those patients that just affect you you know because their story is so compelling and you can see how much they are suffering and that that is a a big part of of plastic surgery i think across canada plastic surgery here in ottawa i mean we we have a major major centers we have a major training center we're 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 creating new plastic surgeons for the entire country every year here Um, and there are some unfortunate events that happen out there you know whether it's traffic accidents or work-related accidents um, burns etc etc and it is uh, it is amazing and, and a privilege to be involved um, in their care. Now, um, I happen to work in a community hospital, so we don't necessarily see the acuity of those, you know, huge, tremendous uh, accidents with multi systems being involved. But uh, if you have a burn on on your arm and you're and you're worried about how's my elbow going to function and and how long do I have to be off work you know before I can get back to my job uh, and if you can um, make decisions for them early on uh, intervene surgically where necessary and then guide them uh, to appropriate uh, physiotherapists and occupational therapists afterwards to get them back to work sooner and back being engaged um, you know socially and with their families it's pretty cool right like you talk about an arm you know scarring or a burn they're thinking of the skin, you're thinking you immediately went to the elbow. Yeah. Right? Like, so that's it because you realize that it's not so much about how the skin's going to look, it's about the function of yeah. it being able to that, to bend and move. That's and allow right. And in, so, in so many um, surgical specialties, you know, we do think about form leading to function. Um, but uh, that that really is, of course, the, the uh, cosmetic... Um, aesthetic social aspects of burn surgery are huge um, but ultimately we want people to be able to live and move freely and without pain that's that's goal one that's the quality of yeah, life exactly. is, is being pain-free exactly and how do you have a client or a patient sits there and just I just want the pain the pain relief absolutely absolutely and um, that's they can represent some of the most challenging cases because pain um, is such a personal experience and there is no I can't do a pain test on you you know I can't do a pain picture and then say see now we did this and six months later your pain x-ray shows that your pain's been reduced 80 percent so those can be very very difficult cases because sometimes you go well there are some things we can try but I don't know if they're going to work and that um that is a very big part of that whole doctor-patient relationship early on. Like, you know, do you trust me? Are you communicating clearly with me? Okay, let's now go together and see if I can help. 
you have patients coming in having had breast cancer. So uh, you have the mastectomies, you have the reconstruction, you have women who I know suffer from crazy back pain, Mm -hmm. lower back pain based on having heavy, Mm -hmm. you know, having, having large breasts. How much of a decision goes into understanding? And okay, let me rephrase this. Are you doing more work that's like the breast augmentations, Mm -hmm. that's the reconstruction, or that is now people looking to um, have a reduction based on discomfort and pain. Right. So um, certainly, and it, it does just tend to be with where your practice goes over time. And that the answer to that might shift, you know, if we talk about that exact same question next year. Um, but in terms of uh, breast reconstruction with implants versus breast reduction, um, I'm going to say, thankfully, thankfully, doing more breast reduction um, for women, uh, breast reconstruction using tissue expanders, putting in permanent implants, doing fat grafting. Um, these are all a part of my practice. Um, but day in, day out, when I look at my OHIP breast practice, it's women who come with a, with a story of having large breasts and truly physically suffering from that you know for sometimes from their early teens you know 12 13 years of age um, where they've got the headaches the neck pain the sloped shoulders um, and uh, you know grooving rashes etc etc and when I meet uh, those women that's that's just awesome because I know that though it's going to take time to you know run through all the steps, um, get the approval, make sure that we understand all the risks and benefits. Um, I know that when we're done, I'm going to have a happy patient and I will have had uh, a positive, permanent effect on her life. You just mentioned that there's a lot of steps to go through. So let's say a person sitting, listening to this going, you know what, I've spent the last 20 years with Mm -hmm. an, an enormous amount of weight that I'm carrying. Uh, back pains, headaches, yeah. everything that you've just yeah. mentioned, this is maybe the time that I can start to say, I'm going to feel better, uh, be in less pain. Let's start this process. Okay. You just mentioned that there's a lot of different yeah. steps. So, so yeah. how long does that, how long would that take then? So um, let, let's uh, let's start with, you know, those, those personal responsibilities. So, you know, managing your health. So we have to make sure that for these elective procedures, non-smoker, all right, for a body contouring procedure, let's make sure that um, diet and exercise are on board so that we're at an appropriate and safe weight to proceed. So once that's happened with you know the patient and discussing that with their uh, their healthcare provider, then um, it does require a referral. So okay, can we stop for a second? You mentioned non-smoker right off the mm-hmm. top. So a woman comes in wanting a breast reduction, but is a smoker. Yeah. Well, I'll say that much that she she doesn't come in because that's part of our pre-screening um, with with a limited resource being the the people to do this procedure and with the knowledge that there are increased risks um, uh, involved in elective well in any surgery mm-hmm. but specifically elective surgeries like this increased risk for, with those people who smoke um, they're just not candidates to proceed with these. Okay, well, that's that's information I bet you some people didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, uh, you know, there are different different approaches as to how long does someone need to be an ex-smoker, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly, 
um, I like to say about six months because six months helps reverse some of the reversible issues. And I also think that at six months, now you've quit. Why bother? Why bother going back? You know, um, what's interesting and a new a new challenge that we really don't know about is um, what will be the role of e-cigarettes and other nicotine vaping products and how that's going to impact um, wound healing and and uh, surgical complication rates and and that's not clear yet. Well, we're seeing a lot of issues. I mean, we're seeing a lot of. It's been fascinating to see what's been happening in the news. Mm-hmm. Young people, yeah. You know, in, in in comas, and mm-hmm. there's been unfortunately there have been deaths due to, to vaping, and so I'm thinking a lot of it's happening within the lungs, uh, and that's very close to where you would be doing operations. Yeah, but like, but more so with us, the, the lungs re- being that source of of everything that feeds your body. I mean, without without oxygenated blood, you know, there is no there is no surgery, there is no healing, there's no life. Right, and so anything that we do to rob ourselves of of, of oxygen, um, you got to think long and hard before um, before you should incorporate that into your life, hmm. for sure. So so that there's that yeah. part, there's that part, you know. So non-smokers um, and uh, people should do their best to try and approach a healthy weight. Um, and again, all to do this is all to do with complication rates and safety. You know when. When there is no choice but to do surgery, you know, major accidents, cancer, you, you take these risks on when someone is less than an ideal candidate, we're going to go ahead. But when we're talking about an elective, very important, but elective lifestyle surgery, we have to control for as many variables as we can. And that's where smoking and weight tend to be sort of the, the, the two big ones that I think we have control over. But the, the reality check of someone coming in for body contouring and you saying, well, have you tried healthy eating and exercise? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, are, so, are, they, are, they, are they looking for the easy, well, no, I'm looking for the magic pill on this one. No, I, no. I, I think people actually are coming to it honestly. Mm-hmm. I really do think they're coming to it honestly. And I think to flip that, the, um, uh, the conversation I have most often is, Hey, look, I have lost the weight. Um, you know, maybe I, I had some baby weight uh, or some, you know, post-lactation breast size, or maybe I've just always been lar- large busted. And you're like, um, I, I've lost 20, 30, 40 pounds. These are real numbers. And my breast size hasn't gone down at all. Um, that's really common. I think they sort of expect me mm-hmm. to kind of go, well, you know, you should try harder. But I'm like, no, I get it. Now you've done that. Now let's talk about the options that we have because there would be the expectation for certain individuals they lose the weight the breasts the breast loses the weight as well mm-hmm. but with some it just that's not the case that's not the case and you can't absolutely predict who they are you can't sort of list off mm-hmm. oh i know that if she loses you know 30 pounds that she's going to go down three cup sizes no you can't predict that do you also deal with women i mean and, and those that are breast cancer survivors that sometimes to say it's not worth the the reconstruction mm-hmm. that what the, they've already put their body through so much yeah. that this you might, might not be the right candidate to be able to to go back in and go back under the knife to do it. Well, when it when it comes from me, if if the if the um, decision not to proceed is on my end, that's that's a very difficult conversation, and that would involve some specifics. Boy, that would that would be a tough one because there's often something. 
you know, there's often something you can do. But um, when I think of different stories, of course, the stories that we hold, you know, nearest and dearest are the successes. So you do the surgery, one step, three steps, however long it takes. And then two years later, three years later, you bump into them and they're still thrilled and they're happy. Like, that's amazing. But sometimes it's really nice sitting down with a woman. Maybe she comes in with a partner or a close friend or just by herself. And you go through the steps and you have an honest interaction about what the expectations are, what the potential downsides are, um, and also uh, what what some of the great results can be. And when she says, nah, thanks, not for me, that's an awesome conversation too. Because you know that she came in there with motivation, looking for knowledge, and sat down with um, someone who has an expertise in the field, and then was sort of like, okay, I've done my own personal math. I'm not going to do it. And that's awesome too. Sometimes it just doesn't add up. Yeah, which is great. Uh, what can add up is cost. Have costs come down in the industry than it was before? I mean, this is, this is, this is discretionary income, I mm. think, for a lot of mm. people, right, when you're talking electives. But it, yeah. it, have certain prices come down? Well, um, one thing I want to be very clear mm-hmm. with people is that um, – just because a plastic surgeon walks into your life, like in the emergency room or your family doctor sends you to a plastic surgeon, like, please don't, you know, have a heart attack and sort of reach for your wallet because there are a lot of things that are covered. And just because you're seeing a plastic surgeon does not mean that you have to pay. And, and to, to be very clear with things that are near and dear to my heart, the breast reconstruction after, uh, after cancer, breast reductions, these things are insured and and there certainly does not appear to be anything on the horizon that suggests that that's going to change anytime soon so people don't have to worry about that aspect Um, when we look at the other things that are more classically cosmetic so if, if you know thinking of breast augmentation and tummy tuck or abdominoplasty or then some of the in office procedures um the answer is a little bit more complex. Uh, certainly, there is more competition in the market. Um, uh, there are uh, non-physicians, non-specialty physicians um, doing injectable treatment, and some with phenomenal results. Um, and then there is still that core group of plastic surgeons, dermatologists, ophthalmologists, ear, nose, and throat surgeons who, who have a little bit more expertise in the area. Um, on average, you're going to pay more for their services than for non-specialty services. Um, In the surgical space, um, costs are just always going up. Um, The costs for those other professionals that you don't necessarily think of uh, being involved in your care, but the anesthesiologist, the facility fee to the hospital or to the private clinic, the people that are running that, they need to get paid. And so actually those costs are going up. Is Uh, Botox coming down? Is, is Botox coming is down Botox. per shot? Yeah. That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, I, again, I think what that, what that comes, what that comes down to is, is, uh, is who's doing it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my, my view of that is that 
truly in some of the simplest cases, um, someone who is appropriately trained, because you always have to make sure that at least they're appropriately trained and they should have that syringe in their hand. Like that's, that's they're, critical. Because Botox, and they're popping up in so many yeah. other places than just a plastic surgeon's office. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're everywhere now. Absolutely. So as long as you do your due diligence and make sure that they should have that syringe in their hand, if, you, if someone has a relatively straightforward uh, uh, concern, a little line between the eyebrows, well then probably most practitioners can handle it. But depending on skin tone and elasticity, um, the, the depth of the wrinkles, what else, what other modalities are available? Is Botox the best tool or is it just the only tool that this person can use? Um, uh, that's when you start to see the role of those experts like plastic surgeons and especially those of us who have um, cosmetic surgery fellowships and that that experience is to sort of say okay well here here are half a dozen tools that I would like to apply to your concerns and we can talk about it so I, I think that again it's a nuanced answer because everybody who's coming through that door is different and they have different goals Right, and it just seems like there's so many other doors that are opening mm -hmm. of places that people are, are seeking these treatments that I don't yeah. think we would have thought about a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and that's the thing. I like I would never throw any of them under the bus. Like as long as as long as they have done their training, as long as they meet the qualifications, there's no reason to think that they can't mm -hmm. do it. But um, uh, I, of course, feel that those of us who understand the anatomy, like the, the bones, the muscles, the nerves, the blood vessels that are under the skin, those of us who see those in the operating room on a week-in, week week-out basis, um, there's, a, there's another level of understanding that, um, that then you can apply to those in-office procedures. And, and that's where some of the cost comes in. You're, you have like the perfect forehead, by the way, because mm -hmm. I've been looking at you mm -hmm. for like an hour. Yeah. And I'm like, there's like, oh, it's, it's perfect. Well, you know, I have to say it, it, it helps. It helps I'm to like, be. I've got like a thousand more lines than Trevor does here, yeah. everyone. Yes. Well, it helps to be married to a dermatologist. Right. I was thinking um, that too. To have an experienced medical esthetician in your office. Yes. To have a bunch of energy boxes available and to have, um, again, colleagues and and uh, people who are qualified to administer injectable treatments when you need them yes <laughs> I do, but i have i'm like i it's it's like it's like a well, baby surface over there it's yeah well, nicely I, done is that the best way to describe it veronica's laughing at me well I'm, you know but yeah. you know what and like i have no problem um usually i'm not broadcasting mm -hmm. that to you know to well, thousands you're of people now. Okay. But, oh, well you're done now yes. but um you know in the office because that's all that's the first thing that people uh say about their major uh fear uh, well costs, which we've just mm -hmm. talked about. Um, but then the hurdle is, I don't want to look fake. Don't make me look plastic, et cetera, et cetera. Don't make me look like a real housewife of right. blah, blah, blah. Um, and then oftentimes we can turn to myself, other physicians in the office, other members of the office and sort of say, well, do you think that my forehead looks fake? Do, do you think that, that her lips look fake? Um, and, or, or what is it about this that you're worried about? And so um, I think for, you know, for those of you who can't see, the goal with me is 
to try and decrease some of the deeper lines. I carry a lot of stress oh, no, no, no. right yes. here. No, it but it looks it's still great. Yeah, right? and you it's have expression. Expressive. So when you were expressing, absolutely, I was just, but I was admiring yeah. it, going, okay, yeah. we're probably around the same age. And, and, and I'm like a month, I'm like a month in. This is peak Botox effect right now. So this yeah. is, you know, and, and you can adjust the dosing for yeah. different, for different I'm, effects. I'm pushing on my 11s right now. Well, yeah. we'll talk later. No, I know. I, trust, <laughs> yeah. trust me. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm like pushing on things right now. Okay. So you thought when we were setting down, like they're like, Oh my God, an hour. I'm like, okay, so we're way, well over the hour at this point right now. Amazing. So where can people, I think go for more information. I really wanted to stay within the, I think you know, the yeah. health of what people might not have considered as to, as to the uses. But I, you know, we didn't get to tummy tucks and, and contouring and even yeah. lip injections and stuff. These are things, you know, you come and have the dialogue for, but yeah. I found it really fascinating for the, with the, with the sweating and then hopefully allowing people just feel better, more confident as they're heading into certain situations. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, that I neglected to mention about the sweating is that if you can, everyone gets a month now, right? So this is hyperhidrosis awareness month, if you can believe oh. it. November. Yeah. See, so, it's like the perfect timing yeah, at yeah, this point perfect, for, perfect for timing. Where um, can people find information yeah, on you? So, I mean, I think one of the easiest ways is just to look us up at the Um, they can follow us on Instagram, which we do use, um, as an educational tool, um, at the, at the Ottawa clinic on Insta. Um, and, uh, you know, they, people can reach out via email, they can give us a call. Um, and uh, we're, we're a number of, uh, of plastic surgeons working together all with different areas of specific uh, interest and expertise. And we're only too happy to, to chat with people. And people are able to come in, get you know, sit in, ask the questions. Absolutely. Um, for, you know, for those procedures uh, that are specifically insured by the province, um, we are obligated to have a referral from uh, your practitioner. Um, but for those people who are interested in things that are uh, cosmetic in nature um, and, and private pay, then uh, people can make a direct inquiry and book with us. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for the chat. Hey, that I was actually awesome. Learned a, I actually learned quite a bit. And I have so yeah. much more to, t- to talk well, about. Well, that's the this thing, right? And I, I said, know. I said, trust me, the hour will fly by. I know. You know, and, I it, know. and it really does. But, uh, you know, I think that there's something to be said about people who are able to heal and allow people to feel a little bit better. And especially when you talk about the comfort and the quality of life. Yeah. There is an aspect. I I think that people just, um, uh, there is absolutely no judgment in in the office. Um, Of course, people's privacy is paramount. But I think when they come in within our little enclave and have a chat, they can see that it can be comfortable to talk about thing, these things that bother us. And um, uh, and that's really the first step is just that comfort level. Go on the website because there were definitely items and procedures that you do that I'm like, I <laughs> that that do get incredibly private and intimate. And yet for it, it there's issues and there's there's solutions for people. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of them. You know, you know, yeah. probably the list that uh, I was getting absolutely. to. Absolutely. But it's all there. Uh, TheOttawaClinic.com if you're looking for more information. Again, and I'm glad because you're totally into podcasts too. I know mm-hmm. that you're listening to them. But please, the best way for this to grow is to continue to share and to like and to comment. And I actually read this really interesting article uh, earlier this week on the growth of podcasts right now are simply based on word of mouth. Is wow. someone saying, oh my God, did you hear this or check out this podcast? So that's the way it's, it's, it's the word of mouth that is really spreading the message of podcasting. So if you're able to let people know about it, living your life with Leanne Lang, it is uh, really beneficial in seeing the podcast numbers grow. So thanks so much for your support, everyone. That is the last edition before, uh, no, 
we're coming off of the hundred, and we're uh, we're heading into now the next hundred uh, as we go. It's crazy. Uh, have a great have a great day, everyone. Really appreciate you uh, tuning in and listening. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a Cash Kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.